0: Thank you, Elder Tom. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Prez. And before we get into the message here today, as many of you may know, uh, this Sunday is actually a very special Sunday because this day uh, we're kicking off the start of our actually our believe it or not our fifth ministry year together as a church uh, that starts here today. And, and as we do at the start of every ministry year, uh, what our church leadership does is they gather together and they set a vision or a theme. For the next 12 months that will guide all of our ministries all of our focus as a church and through much prayer and seeking the Lord's wisdom the theme that our elders in session have set for this upcoming year is the theme of the church visible I believe we have a a graphic up here that Pastor David uh, made for us but essentially what we want to focus on through this theme of the church visible is we want to focus on the importance of not only being visibly and physically present here at the church but also the importance of being visibly visibly and physically uh, connected to the life of the church. And so through this theme, we want to highlight all the visible aspects of our church, our visible leadership through our elders and deacons, all of our visible ministries, as well as all of you who are our visible members and the people of our church. And from the pulpit, we're going to be going through several sermon series that will touch upon this topic of the church visible throughout this upcoming year. But here today, as we start the beginning of our fifth ministry year together as a church, we thought it'd be appropriate actually just to take a step back and to just go all the way back to the beginning and to reflect and think about, why are we here? (laughs) Why does New Life Prez, why is it here, and why do we exist as a church? What are we about? And so what we want to do here today is to revisit and reflect upon the vision of our church, why we exist here today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to be looking at a passage that in many ways directly informs and speaks into our vision as a church And our passage today comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And if you're able, I kindly ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word as an act of reverence and worship towards him. Let's read this together. Matthew chapter 9, beginning of verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word. Please be seated. Now, there's an article written in Forbes a magazine, written by this author, Laura Hennigan, a few weeks ago. And in this article, she explained essentially why certain companies in this world thrive and succeed so much, and while other companies or organizations, they never really get their foot off the ground. And essentially her point in this article was that the most successful companies in this world are not just the organization or companies that have the best products at at the lowest or the best margins, but the most successful organizations and companies in this world tend to be those that not only have all that, but behind that they have a compelling story or they have a compelling purpose behind everything they do. In other words, they have a mission or a purpose that, in some small way, it connects with us as human beings beings, and it resonates with us us on some level. Now, for example, I just got this off of the same article online, but here's a list of vision or mission statements from some of the most successful companies in this world. And, I don't know, see if you can guess any of these. Uh, The first one, it says, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That's Tesla. (laughs) I know some of you believe in this because I see so many Teslas out in the parking lot. You no, know, the next one is bringing the best user experience to customers through innovative hardware, software, and services. That's Apple. I don't know how many iPhones there are here, but there's probably a lot here in this, in this room. And The last one, to inspire and to develop the builders of tomorrow. If you have kids, you're probably very familiar with this. It's Lego. Now friends, immediately after hearing each of these statements, right after you hear this, you probably have a very clear picture in your mind and your head of what each company is about, why they exist, what their purpose is, and why you either believe in their mission and their products or why you don't. But see, that's the power of having a very clear and compelling purpose and vision statement. And see, the same is true not just in the corporate world or in the secular world, but even in some way here in the church. Because, brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with churches that don't have purpose or vision statements, that's not a requirement in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with churches that just say, you know what, our vision is just to do what the Bible says. We just want to be faithful. That's our mission. But see, the thing is, that's not a very clear picture of what the church stands for, or what it's about, because there's a lot of things that the Bible teaches. Isn't there? And see, that's why here at New Life Prez, we have a vision statement that focuses and that drives everything that we do here as a church. And for those of you who are visiting or maybe you're new to our church, this is what our vision is. Our vision here at New Life Press is to impact Orange County and beyond by making gospel-centered, compassionate, missions-minded disciples of Christ. At the end of the day, that's our purpose. That's why we as a church exist here. We exist, at the end of the day, to make disciples that are going to impact our community and beyond. Now, friends, what I want to do with the remainder of our time here this morning is to consider more specifically, if that's why we exist as a church, simply to make disciples, then I want us to think about the question, what kind of disciples are we trying to produce here at this church? What kind of disciples do you want to strive to produce here at New Life Prez? Well, see, if all a disciple is is literally just a student or a follower, in other words, someone that studies or models themselves after another teacher or a leader, then all we need to do is, in order to determine what kind of disciples we want to produce at this church, is to look at the model, to look at the one that we're trying to resemble, and become like. You see, this passage that we just read earlier in Matthew chapter 9, it's one of the clearest pictures in the New Testament of the kind of person and the kind of Savior that Jesus was. In other words, friends, what we have in this passage in Matthew chapter 9, it's a very clear picture of the, disciple, of the type of disciples that we want to be producing here at our church. And specifically in this passage, there are three aspects of Jesus' life, that we here at our our church at New Life Press want to cultivate in the life of all of our members as disciples of Jesus. And so the three things that we'll look at in this passage are, first, that Jesus and disciples of Jesus are gospel-centered. Secondly, Jesus and disciples of Jesus are compassionate. And thirdly, they're missions-minded. So again, those are the three things that we'll be looking at here together in our passage. But first, let's begin with the first point. If you read with me again verse 35 of our passage, Matthew says this in verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And some of you may know that uh, I have a housemate, and my housemate has uh, a guinea pig named Snoopy. And every time we're talking about this guinea pig, he always says the same thing. He always says, dude, this guinea pig has the greatest life, because all it does is eat, sleep, and, and go to the bathroom was the only three things that this guinea pig, that's basically its entire life. Now essentially what Matthew does in verse 35 is he does a similar thing, because in verse 35 what Matthew does is he summarizes, and he encapsulates Jesus's, basically his entire life in earthly ministry, and he boils Jesus's life and ministry down to three things. Teaching, preaching the gospel, and healing people. But see, what's so interesting about this list that Matthew gives us is what he emphasizes through it. See... When Jewish writers like Matthew, when they wanted to emphasize something, what they would do was they would always place the thing of most importance at the center or the middle of a phrase or a list, almost kind of like a sandwich. And see, so what happens here when Matthew summarizes Jesus' life is first here on the bottom, you have teaching. That's the first bread. At the very end of this list, you have healing people and their diseases. That's the second bread. But what's in the middle? What's at the core? At the core of this list is preaching the gospel. Friends, why is that so important? You know, one commentator named Donald Hagner, he puts it this way, he says this, the center of Jesus' activity is the good news of the kingdom. His words and his deeds, indeed his very person, they all point to and presuppose that one reality. In other words, friends, if if you think about Jesus' life, just think about it for a moment. Everything that he did ultimately was done to point towards the gospel, wasn't it? See, all the parables and the crazy things that people couldn't understand in the Gospels, why did Jesus teach all those things? It wasn't just to give them a more moral way to live or to figure out a riddle, but it was to point towards his death and resurrection on the cross for them. See, all the miracles and all the healing that Jesus did, why did he do that? Well, he did it ultimately so that people would see not only their need for physical healing, but for spiritual restoration that can only be found in him. And so friends, the first thing that we see in this passage is that through and through, Our Savior, Jesus' life, it was about and it was centered around the gospel. His life, his thoughts, his decisions, all of his actions were constantly done in service to the gospel. And friends, if that's the case, as people who then strive to live as disciples of Jesus here today in Orange County, what does this mean for you and I here today? What does it mean and what does it look like for you and I to be and to grow as gospel-centered disciples of Jesus Friends, before we think about the answer to that question, I think we just need to answer the question, what is it exactly what does it mean to be gospel-centered? You know, that's kind of a, a trite tag-on or saying or adjective these days. People always throw around gospel-centered as an adjective. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Friends, just think about it for a moment. What do you mean when you say that someone is not gospel-centered but self-centered? What do we mean by that? See, when you call someone self-centered, You don't literally mean by that that the only thing that person ever thinks about is literally directly themselves as a person. That's not what you mean. But see, what makes someone self-centered is they think about a lot of other things too, like what am I going to wear, what am I going to eat, how am I going to spend my money or use my time? But see, what makes someone self-centered is that the self is the thing that informs all those other thoughts or decisions. In other words, what makes someone self-centered is that everything that person does and thinks about Every decision always goes through the lens or the filter of the self. And friends, in the same way, that's what it means to be a gospel-centered disciple. See, what it means is this. It, it, It doesn't mean that you don't ever think or care about things of this world like your money, your career, your family, your school, success, accomplishments. But friends, all it means is that every single thing that you do in this life, every thought, every small decision is always going to be filtered and passed through the lens of what Jesus has done and how that changes and affects your life. It's going to pass through the lens of the gospel. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. Now, friends, before we move on to our second point, if we're honest here today, myself included, almost none of us live this way all the time, do we? I mean, if you're honest, Jesus' grace, what he's done for you, it's not always the main lens through which you are filtering and processing your life, and all the decisions and things that you go through. And so the, the question I want us to simply consider is this. Why is that the case? Why is it so hard for us as Christians to live gospel-centered lives? Well, I think mainly there are two reasons why. One, because we either don't realize or we've forgotten the weight of our debt against God. Or secondly, because we either don't realize or we've forgotten the weight of God's grace. I just want to spend a few moments thinking through both of these things. First, we don't realize or we've forgotten the weight of our debt. You know, I think almost all of us here in this room have probably had this experience, or we've seen it either in our own lives, we've seen it in someone else in the church, where someone decides to follow Jesus. They accept Jesus as their Savior. And then slowly but surely, a little time passes. You look at your own life, or if it's another person, you look at their life, and you realize there's not a lot of change there. There's little to no transformation in that person's life, their decisions, their actions, their thoughts. You know, I think at the heart of that lack of change or transformation, why this happens so frequently in the church, it stems from a lack of realization or the lack of remembering you're dead against God. What do I mean by that? Well, just just as an illustration, imagine for a moment, someone knocked on your door, they came to your door and they said, Hey, uh, I dropped by your house yesterday and the UPS man, he dropped off a bill. Uh, You weren't home, so I went and I, I just opened the bill and I actually paid for it for you. It's all taken care of. You don't have to worry about that bill or that debt anymore. Now, if that happened, until that person told you how big or how much money that bill was for, you're not gonna know how to respond to that person, are you? See, if it was just the extra $12 that you forgot to pay on your gas bill last month, then you might just respond to that person and say, wow, thank you so much. You really didn't have to pay that extra $12 But you did, thank you so much, Uh, don't ever touch my mail again, That's a felony. And you just move on with the rest of your day. But now, friends, imagine for a moment, if it wasn't just the extra $12 from your gas bill last month, but imagine that bill was the rest of your mortgage on your house, plus all of the debt that you accrued from college and grad school, plus your spouses and your future kids, and that person paid off all of that. Friends, the point is this, Until you know whether just to, you know, say thanks to that person and move on with the rest of your life or to get down on your hands and knees because you are forever indebted to that person, you're not going to know how to respond until you realize how big the payment or the debt was. And friends, in the same way, when someone says, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he died for me on the cross, I accept him as my Lord and Savior, but you never see any response You never see any real change or response in that person's life in the way that they live. What's the problem? The problem is they either don't realize or they've forgotten how big that debt was and therefore how big the payment was. And therefore, there's little to no change. There's no response. Sure, they say thank you, but you kind of just move on with the rest of your life. That's the first reason why I think many of us, we struggle to live gospel-centered lives. see, the second reason is this. Maybe for some of us, we don't realize or we've forgotten the weight of God's grace in our lives. See, what happens if you do? You do realize the weight and the depth of your sin. You realize how wretched and hopeless you are as a person. But you don't realize how deep and weighty God's grace is for you. Well, see, if that's the case, what is the focus of your entire life going to constantly be on? It's going to be on you. It's going to be on Your performance, your success or your failures, your faithfulness or your unfaithfulness. See, rather than passing through the lens of the gospel, everything that you do in your life is gonna be seen through the lens of yourself. Your competency, your ability, your performance, whether or not you're a good parent or spouse, a good friend, a good coworker or boss, whether or not you're a good student, whether or not you're a good Christian or not. And see, when you are all of those things, you feel great. You get all puffed up, you feel good about yourself. And then there's little to no room or space or need for the gospel in your life to work. But see, when you aren't all of those things and you're not doing well, then what happens? Well, then you get really discouraged. Maybe you feel hopeless. And because of that, you don't really feel like God's grace is real. It can be real. Or that you can accept it truly in your life. Brothers and sisters, if you and I want to begin to grow and live as gospel-centered disciples, It begins with not only understanding and remembering the depth and the weight of our sin against God that Jesus paid, but friends, it begins also with understanding and remembering how deep God's mercy and how deep his grace is for you. This leads us to our second point. Compassion. Now read with me again verse 36 of our passage. In verse 36, Matthew writes this and he says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless." like sheep without a shepherd. Now here at our second point, what I just simply want us to consider together is, what does it look like for you and I as disciples of Jesus to learn from and to grow in his compassion? You know, and again, I think the first thing that we need to do is just define simply, what exactly, what is compassion? Well, see, in the Greek, what's interesting is the word that Matthew uses there when he says Jesus had compassion on the crowds, it's literally the Greek word for intestines or guts or innards, or bowels. And so another way that you could translate verse 36 is by saying, when Jesus saw the crowds, his bowels yearned deeply for these people. His guts poured out for the crowds. And friends, what that shows us is that first and foremost, compassion, it's not necessarily something that you do for someone else. But friends, compassion, as we see here, is something that you feel for someone else. Does that make sense? You know, there's a psychologist named Hope Arnold. Uh, she wrote an article in 2020 uh, explaining and describing the difference, psychologically at least, between kindness and compassion. And in this article that she wrote, she defines kindness and compassion like this. She says, kindness is an external action that others can see around you, whereas compassion is an internal feeling that you experience or that you feel inside yourself. And so, friends, according to those definitions, what that means is this. It means you can show a lot of kindness externally towards someone without never necessarily feeling compassion for that person. But see, on the flip side, if you genuinely are compassionate and you have compassion for someone, it's almost always going to manifest itself in some sort of external kindness. Does that make sense? Perhaps the best way to illustrate this is to think of someone that all of us in this room are probably very familiar with, a Chick-fil-A employee. (laughs) I know all of us probably have been to Chick-fil-A before. Think about a Chick-fil-A employee. Externally, they're some of the kindest people on this earth, aren't they? They serve you with a smile. They're always friendly and super polite to you. But see, the thing is, friends, no matter how many times they say to you, my pleasure, or have a great day, honestly, inside, they probably never actually care if you're going to have a great day or not. See, the point is, externally, they have so much kindness, externally, in their actions, their demeanor. But see, on the inside they probably lack a lot of compassion because they don't actually feel anything for you inside. And friends, I think this is such an important distinction to make because as we go back to our passage, what Matthew shows us in our passage in verse 36 is this, that Jesus is not a kind Savior. He's a compassionate one. And what that means is that Jesus does not just externally perform all these kind and gracious acts towards people, but friends, what that means is that Jesus genuinely cares about us and he cares about broken people internally, not just externally. Dane Ortland, in one of his books, he writes this talking about Jesus' compassion. And he says that compassion is deeper than just saying Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering not away from it, Brothers and sisters, when Jesus looks at you out in the crowds, he sees your mess and your sin and your brokenness. His most instinctive impulse, his most natural impulse is not to turn from you or to forsake you or to judge you, but it's to go towards you, to approach you and to draw near to you. And friends, that's one of the most freeing and encouraging truths that the Bible can give us, that Jesus is not just a kind Savior, but that he's a compassionate one. But friends, here's the challenge. As disciples then of Jesus, can the same be said about the way that we relate to other people around us? You know, in this passage, when Jesus looked out at the crowds, what did he see? He saw the very reason that he came to this earth, to love and care for the lost, the marginalized, and those who are unlovable in the world. Brothers and sisters, when you and I look out into the crowds, in our workplaces, maybe your schools, even in this church, what do we see? You know, maybe you see people who seem like a burden, seem like a chore to even talk to. Maybe you see people who are just so different from you or they seem below you that they just don't, you don't feel like investing your time or your energy in them at all. You know, another way to think about it is this. Brothers and sisters, how do you respond when you are confronted with someone else's sin or their suffering, or difficulties, or their differences from you? What is your most natural instinct when you're confronted with that? You know, maybe for some of us it's avoidance or ignorance. You know, we just think to ourselves in our minds, I already have so much going on in my own life and play, I just don't have time to deal with this person, I don't want to invest in their burden, their struggle. Maybe sometimes our response is one of judgment. You know, we see people who are struggling, they're living in sin or idolatry, and we think to ourselves, I'm just going to leave this person alone. I don't want to approach them or go into that mess because whatever happens to them, they probably deserve it. I mean, just look at the way that they're living. And friends, when we do that, what we're doing is we're forgetting. We're forgetting and we're failing to remember the way that Jesus responds to us, the way that he responds to our sin, our idolatry, and our own struggles. You know, brothers and sisters, I say this as pastorally as I can, and I am included in this too. But, you know, as much as our church, I genuinely believe, is filled with kind and very generous people, I honestly believe, even for myself included, that our church still has a long way to grow in our compassion. You know, because as much as our church has grown so much over the years in our kindness towards one another in the church, in community and generosity, you know, at times I wonder how much our own hearts, mine included, has grown in compassion for other people around us. Who are lost and hurting and broken. Because, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, our vision here at New Life Press is not to produce disciples whose actions resemble Jesus externally. Friends, our vision is to produce disciples whose hearts resemble Jesus and what his heart was for the lost and the broken. Because friends, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that God cares about the heart more than he cares about external actions or conformity. 1 Samuel 6-7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on that which is outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this brings us to our last point. Read with me again verses 37 and 38. Verses 37 and 38, Matthew says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, the final thing that we see here in this passage is that this gospel centrality, this gospel focus that Jesus had, and this compassion that he had, what it ultimately did was it drove him towards missions. And it drove him towards raising up more laborers for the work of missions. You see, up until this point in Matthew's gospel, there's actually been only one person out in the harvest fields laboring for the harvest, and that person has been Jesus. And see, so when he tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are really few, it's actually an understatement because he's been the only worker this whole time. And so what Jesus does in these final two verses is he begins to prepare his disciples to take up his mantle. He begins to ready himself to pass on the torch so that they can begin participating participating in the work of missions themselves. And friends, the question that I want us to consider briefly on our last point is this. What does it look like for you and I here today to grow as missions-minded disciples of Jesus? And how can we begin to become more missions-minded in our own lives every single day? And see, the answer that Jesus gives us, the answer that he gives disciples is in verse 38. And it might not be what we expect because Jesus has the answer to all that is going to be prayer. It's prayer. And you know, what's interesting is that in verse 38, uh, the specific word that Jesus uses for prayer, it's not the typical Greek word for prayer when he tells his disciples to pray for missions, but it's actually the word, a word that means to plead or to beg desperately, to implore someone else. And see, I think the reason that Jesus chose to use this word is because at the end of the day, Jesus knew that prayer reveals your priorities. Jesus knew that prayer reveals your heart. Is that not true, friends? Just think about your own life. What you pray about every day when you do pray, what you pray about, the things that you pray about, those in many ways, in the best way, reveal most clearly what you're about, what you care about, what you value in your life, what's important to you. And friends, if that's the case, then how much more is that not true? Not only when you're just praying regularly every day, but in those moments of your life when you're desperate and when you're just crying and pleading and crying out to God earnestly in prayer. Now, think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. When was the last time that you pleaded and cried out to God in prayer? Or maybe you had a, a big test, you had an interview coming up, and you just prayed, God, please just help me do well, help me pass this test or this interview and get into this job or this school that I applied for. Maybe it was the last time you or a loved one were really, really sick. You're, they're in a lot of pain and suffering. You just prayed, God, please just heal this person or heal me. Make this illness go away. Take it away, God. Or maybe the last time you, you pleaded to God was because maybe you or a loved one was going through hardship. You just felt lost. You felt lonely. And you just cried out to God, God, please just be with me. Comfort me. Guide me. Watch over me. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. When was the last time, if ever, that you pleaded and you cried out to God, not for yourself, but for him, for his mission, and what he is doing in this world? And friends, my guess is that if you're like me, you might not even remember the last time you did that or that happened. And friends, why is, why is that the case? Why is it when something in our lives is going wrong even slightly that we instinctively We turn to God and cry out to him, God, fix us, do something here. But when it comes to God's mission in this world, oftentimes you and I are silent in prayer, aren't we? Friends, I think the simple reason is this. I think the reason that this happens is because so often, friends, we forget what our purpose in this life really is. So often we become so fixated with things around us or in our lives Good things like, you know, your work or career, your family, your kids, their futures, success, accomplishments. That somewhere along the way, those things begin to become our purpose. The things that we're living our lives for. While at the very same time, the things that you and I were truly created for, they start to feel less important to us. And they start to feel a lot less relevant than those other things. There's a pastor named Christopher Wright. He once wrote a book on missions, a very famous book, and he once said this in this book. He wrote, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Now, brothers and sisters, as simple as this is, at times this is the reminder that you and I so desperately need to hear but we so rarely remember in our everyday lives that you and I were not created for the purpose solely of becoming successful or financially secure. You and I were not created for the purpose of accomplishing all our hopes and dreams in our own lives or for our kids. You and I were not created for the sole purpose of making for ourselves an easy or a comfortable life here on this earth. But friends, you and I were created for the purpose of God's mission in this world. The purpose to proclaim the name and the gospel of Jesus to a world and to people around us who desperately need to hear that message. That is what you and I were made and created for. That is our purpose. And friends, when you and I realize and we actually remember that, friends, only then will we finally begin to plead to God for the loss and the hurting around us. Only then will we cry out to God and the Lord of the harvest to raise up more laborers to go out into the harvest. And only then... Will you and I begin to participate in this mission ourselves as disciples of Jesus? And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to a close, what we have in this passage is a picture and it's a glimpse of what we want every member in our church here at New Life Press to become, a disciple who is gospel-centered and compassionate and missions-minded. But see, friends, as much as our vision is to see people growing and thriving in all these ways, friends, the last thing that we want as a church is for all of us and all our focus, all our gaze, all our attention to be fixated upon ourselves and how much we're growing in all these ways or how much we're not. Because friends, at the end of the day, all we want as a church is for each and every one of us here in this room to have our hearts and our eyes and our gaze fixed not upon ourselves, but upon our Savior Jesus. Because see friends, when your heart and your eyes are captivated by Jesus and who he is, what he's done, you begin to realize You began to acknowledge in your heart that Jesus has been all these things for you this whole time. That he came to accomplish redemption alone and to give you the gospel, to be the gospel for you. That he looked out into those crowds and he had compassion on people like you and me who are lost and broken, who are far from him. That Jesus went on mission from heaven's heights down to the humiliation of the cross and was raised again. That he did all those things, brothers and sisters, for you and for me. See, when you see that, and you begin to believe that, well, friends, slowly but sure, you'll be able to grow in all those ways too and become more like your Savior. Let me close with this. One of my favorite Bible stories is when Peter is walking on the water with Jesus out on the lake. Because I think, in a very clear and profound way, this story teaches us a lot about discipleship. See, when Peter is out there on the water, and his gaze is fixed on Jesus, he's actually able to emulate Jesus. He's able to follow him and walk with Jesus out on that water. But see, the moment that Peter turns his gaze away from Jesus, onto himself, or the way is what happens. He's no longer able to effectively follow Jesus as a disciple. And see, friends, in the same way, brothers and sisters, as you and I, we strive to follow Jesus as disciples here in this church, I pray that however Quickly or slowly, our own journey of growth and discipleship takes. Friends, we would go on this journey not with our eyes and our hearts fixed upon ourselves and how we're doing or growing as Christians, but with our eyes and our hearts set and fixed upon our Savior Jesus, who loved us and died for us, who is gospel-centered, who lived a compassionate life, and who is missions-minded through and through for people like you and me. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege of being able to worship you here today. Lord, as we reflect upon uh, the start of our fifth ministry as a church, Lord, we're reminded God just of so much of your faithfulness, God, in our lives. Lord, as we strive to produce and cultivate disciples in this church who are gospel-centered, who are compassionate, and who are missions-minded, Lord, we recognize that we cannot accomplish any of these things on our own. And so, Lord, as we're reminded through this passage, would you help us, God, to keep our hearts and our gaze and our focus fixed upon who Jesus is and how lovely and beautiful his grace is for us. May that grace continue to transform us day by day, more into his image. We thank you and love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.